Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, we get a liberal strategist's take on the latest moves in the Conservative Party leadership race and ask who he would rather fight an election against. We find out why the European Union is preparing for a long, cold winter. Hard to believe, but an aviation industry insider says the problems at Pearson Airport and other airports are only going to get worse. And the Pentagon officially has opened a UFO investigations office. It's going to be called the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. We'll find out what that is. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, some things have happened in the last few days that have made the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race a little bit more interesting. There was this message from former leader and former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Pierre Poilievre was a strong minister in my government. In the past several years, he's been our party's most vocal and effective critic of the Trudeau Liberals. He's been talking about the issues, especially the economic issues, that matter. And then there was a lighter note from Jean Charest. Okay, so we're doing mean tweets, and uh, I'm going to subject myself to this, and I'm going to start with this. Charest has the personality of a stick. You know what? I have a very nice personality. The only people who I stuck it to, by the way, are separatists, so nothing wrong with that. It went on a little longer than that, but there's also been some polling, not only to look at the race, but at what the CPC's chances are beyond the leadership race itself. So I thought I'd get a strategist's point of view on these moves and see how they might land first with party members who are casting their votes right now, and then on the public at large. Joining us is Muhammad Ali, a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies, and for those playing the home game, He's also a liberal. So first, what do you think of the Harper endorsement of Pierre Poiliev? Uh, I think there's like three ways to look at it. One is, um, you know, you could be the cynic and say, well, this is a sign that Pierre is kind of nervous with his get out the vote strategy and he needs a big name to come out. Uh, the second is this is it really doesn't make a difference because Pierre has such a, a huge lead with the number of members he's signed up. Uh, or the third is that uh, they're trying, at least from Stephen Harper's perspective, ensure sort of a, a quick victory for Pierre Poliver in the, in, when, ele- during Election Day uh, to win the first round to help show that, hey, the, the party's very unified behind Pierre Poliver, given the very divisive uh, leadership race that's taking place right now. So there's three ways looking at it. Uh, and that's interesting because I was not surprised by this endorsement at all. First off, uh, Poliev is a former Harper cabinet minister. And uh, there was also that Harper... Um, a minor PR thing that really kind of blew up in his face about the whole old stock Canadian. So I thought that kind of went along with what uh, Pierre Poiliev has been doing so far in his race. Yeah, look, I, you know, you hear, you've heard before, you know, especially in the Ottawa bubble that uh, Stephen Harper had a soft, had a soft spot for Pierre Poliver. Uh, and so, but I think really it's, uh, you know, Stephen Harper really, really does not like Jean Charest. Uh, so it's not surprising that he chose to to endorse him. But I think what's surprising is the fact that Stephen Harper actually publicly endorsed someone. Uh, he avoided that in, in the last two leadership races. It's quite unprecedented for a former leader to actually choose and identify uh, a person that they prefer to lead the party, uh, you know, usually up to members. So it's it, this is a very interesting kind of approach for Stephen Harper to take after being very careful. I mean, we all know how careful he is with his public image. Uh, and to, to come out right now, I think it's a sign that he he wants to see some sort of unity come quickly 
behind the presumptive uh, winner that will be Pierre Polliver. Uh, he also is a big, uh, bigger fan of Pierre's than he is of Jean Charest. Uh How much sway does Stephen Harper still have on party members, especially the new ones who have been signed on by candidates in this race? Well, he, he definitely still has an appeal. I mean, this is this is the man that uh, led this current party after its formation. Uh, he represents the the wing of the party that is the most dominant in in the current iteration of the Conservative Party, having been a the leader of the Reform Party and the Alliance Party after their merger. Uh, and so, you know, he was the last Conservative Prime Minister, and a lot of Conservative members still worship the ground that he walks on. So, uh, you know, it, it does have uh, sway, and especially he may be using this as an opportunity to mobilize those who may be feeling uh, that they're going to sit on the sidelines or, you know, what, this is sort of a done deal. I don't want to waste my time voting or what. It could be a number of reasons uh, why, but uh, there is still a devotion towards him, given his his stature in the party as the, you know, one of the founders and the, the only prime minister to date and one that led for nearly 10 years. Uh, I wanted to get your take on a couple of things that have happened uh, in terms of uh, attempts to get some social media traction for the two front-running candidates. One I played a clip of in the intro, and that was uh, Jean Charest reading mean tweets. It got, I, when I checked this morning, it was over 61,000 views. Well, I think social media is the is the name of the game, right? Uh, if it's in, if it's not on social, then it probably never happened, as, as many, especially in the younger generations, will say. Um Look, Pierre has had an excellent social media game. Uh, you know, kudos to his his digital team that has put up very effective videos, uh, portrayed him in, in, in a way that's very engaging and uh, and sort of uh, a little bit more flashy, similar to what Justin Trudeau did in 2015. Um, you know, utilizing social media, utilizing the, you know a, a coherent message that resonates with younger voters or with those who are feeling disenfranchised. Jean Charest is a little bit you know. Uh, slow to the game and uh, he sort of had a very weak social media game up until now and I think this is an opportunity for him to or taking the advantage of the opportunity to uh, get in front of people seem more relatable seem a little bit not so old as he's being portrayed by the other candidates uh, as a as a conservative from the from the old days from the 80s and 90s so um, you know there. It's it. These kind of clips really make a difference. People want to also see personality. People want to see uh, what's behind the policy and the politics that exists out there. Uh, they've got a taste of that out of Pierre Polliver a lot, and, and and he's done very well on that front. And this is Jean Charest's attempt to try doing that, an attempt to get out the vote. Well, I was just glad to see something that was a little bit lighter in this whole conservative leadership race. It's been pretty heavy. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever uh, seen a more divisive, uh, uh, toxic sort of race. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, usually you have to be very careful with uh, in a leadership race about how you treat your opponents because, in the, the day, they they're going to be your colleagues and their members that they sign up are the very people you want to keep uh, so that they vote for you in the next coming upcoming election. So uh, you have to be very careful with that. And so, but you know, people like Pierre Polliver have held no. Uh, no punches back. And uh, I mean, he, he now lost uh, his, I think, top rival in Patrick Brown after his uh, scandal that uh, that he just had with the, um, uh, the, dis- the disqualification. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's, new, there's a need to bring things together. I think this is where Stephen Harper's sort of outreach, you know, you saw a lot of the old school conservatives come out throughout this race saying, look, like we cannot be giving fodder to our opponents, particularly liberals, 
uh, and attacking each other and digging up the, the dirtiest of skeletons that we can find. Uh, we need to be uh, respectful. We need to understand that this is for the party and not for each other's personal uh, gain. Um, yeah. So I think that's where you saw Stephen Harper really trying to, you know, uh, explain to everyone and share that we need to rally behind uh, the next leader and this leader and his view is Pierre Polliver. Well, and one of the other things I was thinking of is that in all of this, you want to have at least a, a, a sense of stability. This is what the third leadership race in a matter of years. And, and you've got all of this negativity and contention. It, it, you run the risk to average voters, those who are not aligned and will be looking at this down the road. You run the risk of looking like you're still such a mess. Yeah, and you know they may find a blessing that the Liberal NDP deal exists that will have uh, you know keep the Liberals in power until twenty twenty five, so it gives them more time to sort of get their ducks in a row. Um, it's it, it, it's it befuddles me sometimes to seeing just uh, how dysfunctional sometimes and divisive and divided the Conservative Party is. I think they are uh, coming to a point where if if whoever the new leader is uh, goes into the next election and loses again. I think there's serious questions about the viability of the party uh, remains, you know, t- you know, together. Um, this was a party founded by Stephen Harper, but sometimes when the founder is gone, uh, the person who helped, you know, uh, utilize the political capital, keep everyone together and the very different, very polarizing factions within that exist. Uh, it's tough to, to keep that going if you keep perpetually losing and, uh, and are chastising certain segments of the party for it. So, Pierre does, you know, despite what everyone will see, and even with the polling that's showing, obviously a lot of support for Pierre amongst conservative voters, uh, there are still segments of the conservative vote that is uh, nervous of a Pierre-led party and a Pierre government. Uh, there's a space that uh, red Tories and those more on the progressive side are concerned that they just simply will not exist uh, in a Pierre-led party. Uh, so it's going to be on Pierre and his team to to try and. Uh, fight through that and, and pull those voters in because th- that very uh, segment of the party is very much in the mainstream of where most Canadians operate largely. It's in sort of that uh, center, center right area uh, of mainstream politics. So you need to kind of align there as much as you can so that you're pulling these swing voters uh, that you need, particularly in the urban uh, urban centers. Well, and, and that's something that I've been hearing as well, that uh, if Poliev wins, uh, the Red Tories are talking about separating again already. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, when you have folks who, I don't really suspect that the Red Tories will actually form an, a separate party. I just don't think there is that uh, energized base. I think this is where they sometimes uh, find uh, or, or struggle with, is that there isn't that uh, energized base that exists among sort of the Red Tories uh, to pull out and say, well, we're not going to stick around this. We're going to create our own party. I think they're still scarring from the 90s and what did it look like. Um, but ultimately, they 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 were you know given a, a spot in the Stephen Harper era with you know folks like Peter McKay and Jim Flaherty sort of holding that space. Uh, but when people like Michelle Rempel, who are sort of now the progressive wing of the party, are finding it harder and harder to, to stick around and, and have a voice, even Ed Fast as well. Um, who are, you know, maybe not even full red Tories, they're just sort of more close to being red Tories. Uh, it's it's tough to see for for anyone who who aligns with that sort of uh, political view 
to see that they can stick there because right now they're largely in no man's land because even the liberals are not anywhere near that where the Jean Chrétien liberals often were able to pull in the progressive conservatives and the red Tories into their camp for a very long time. Hence their uh, majority dominance in the nineties and early two thousands. So uh, th there is no space for them. And so in a, in a way that there's this disenfranchised group of both uh, red, you know, oh, sorry, blue liberals and red Tories that just don't have a party right now that even is trying very, no, no one's really trying to, you know, pull them in very much. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this sort of plays out over the next couple of years leading into the next election. Uh, can Pierre uh, align and bring in that red Tory back in to make them feel uh, accepted and welcome? Uh, can Justin Trudeau make a, a play for the center once again, like he did in 2015? Or is he, are we going to continue to see that sort of shift again more to the more further left uh, of the party? And somebody who should be really cognizant of the dangers here is Jean Charest. I remember those jokes. Tory, party of two? Yeah, it's, uh, and I think that's why some of them are nervous about the very concept of, uh, of of creating their own party. I think that that scarring still exists. And, you know, the there is, I think, a general sort of acceptance that the conservative party is, is sort of, um, you know, you are a conservative. What, what does a progressive conservative look like then? Um, because a lot of the policies around uh, pro-business, uh, law and order are still, you know, tenants within the conservative party. So it's how do you differentiate yourself? And again, I, you know, the, the energy right now so far is gravitated a lot more to the far, further right of the, of the conservative party, uh, which is why in the debate you're having candidates argue who was more supportive of the convoy. Uh, you weren't having debates of who was more uh, critical of a law-breaking group uh, that took over a city, blocked trade ports and such. Uh, that, none of that was debated. It was debated about who was more supportive of them. So I think there is a very fundamental issue and problem within the, the Conservative Party that uh, people like Jean Charest will not have a spot if he doesn't win. Um, it's very hard for people like him to have a place in the, in the party. And I think that's why they continue to struggle. And you saw Aaron O'Toole really try to uh, make inroads there, and he was making inroads, but a lot of that has been dashed following his uh, expulsion or sorry, expulsion as a leader, and then now the move towards a pure, uh, more right wing style government, uh, sorry, par political party. We're speaking with Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. One of the other things I wanted to touch on, and this is something that uh, is basically included in an Angus Reid Institute survey that was done recently, which really does uh, a deep dive on both Charest and uh, Poiliev and their policies and what their chances are. And that's the question of electability. I mean, in the last two cycles of PC leaderships, we've seen two men who had a really good handle on uh, on what the rules were in order to actually win the leadership. But the problem was they had no profile nationally, and they had to become known to voters, and apparently didn't do a very good job of that because they both lost. Um, and so the question of electability is, I think, something that should also be on the mind of Tory party members. No, for sure. And I think that's, uh, I mean, that poll demonstrates that right now, should there be an election, who would be the more uh, favorable choice? I think that there's a couple of things I want to unpack on that is, um, you know, I, I think for any conservative member, uh, they have to look at obviously electability. And I think that's been talked about a lot. Uh, Josh Ray's tries to push that as, you know, he is the most electable person given his sort of red Tory progressive uh, roots that are more aligned with the more mainstream uh, or traditional Canadian voter. 
but the other thing is uh, we don't know what what the next two three years look like. Uh, right now, it's a lot on on the issues that uh, inflation, on uh, on vaccine mandates, COVID restrictions, and um, and the like, and and you know convoys and such. So, what what what's the issues of the day two years from now, and what does that look like? I think we're also coming to a point where in any natural political cycle, there is a a sense of change needed and a change election is on the horizon. So, um, you know, the liberals will have to work hard to, uh, you know, not maybe entirely reinvent themselves, but re-engage uh, in a new way that uh, recaptures sort of the, the the support and attention that they had had for the last three elections um, and, and to avoid sort of a, a defeat that kind of, you know, there's like a, a wave that comes out and Stephen Harper faced this and, you know, Paul Moran had this a bit. You know, there are things that governments kind of do, and they, you know, they have a lot of baggage. So it's it's going to be a, a unique situation come two three years from. So I think this poll just just demonstrates like, look, like right now in this climate, Pierre uh, Pierre Paul Oliver does not have the uh, support of the average voter uh, that votes Liberal and NDP, or even is more of a progressive voter. But in Jean Charest does a little bit more. But at the end of the day, the the stats are largely the same. Uh, what I think is what conservatives are going to see, saying, look, well, despite whoever it is, conservatives are still going to be polling 34%, uh, which is what they were doing the last two elections. Well, I think this question of electability is one that uh, we're going to have to pay attention to on the provincial level as well. Both the Liberals and the NDP are now going to be looking for new standard bearers. Stephen Del Duca may have been a really smart guy, may be really great on policy, but he never connected with voters. Andrea Horvath had great likability numbers, but people weren't ready at this point to vote for an NDP government again. Yeah, and it's, it comes down to a little bit of electability, but also just the, the mood of the voter. Um, the mood of the voter in the Ontario election just demonstrated that they just weren't ready for uh, to change government again, um, like they did in 2018 against uh, the Ontario Liberals. Um, so it's 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 just one of those things where timing is important. But you have to, if you're going to be at this point where you're going to convince voters why they shouldn't vote for the current government, you need to demonstrate uh, why. And I think that often is uh, an obstacle that many leaders struggle with even if they are likable. Um, and I think Andrea Howard is a great example where she had four kicks of the can at this uh, as leader of the NDP and, and finally never convinced voters uh, beyond after a, a liberal collapse that she was even a viable official opposition leader, uh, but not a premier uh, is what they wanted. So I think there there's a mix of like, you have good policy, you have good likability, but you also have to understand what are people actually feeling and what policy are you putting forward that actually matters to them? Right now, there's a lot of rhetoric in the Conservative Party. Uh, you know, it's a lot of like gatekeepers, removal, and this that. Like, that's not real policy. The real policy has to be what 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 are you going to do that actually changes uh, the everyday lives of of Canadians or or, or whomever your target is. Um, you know, whether it's provincial, federal, or even municipal, as we have a municipal election coming up in October. As a strategist, and we only have a couple of minutes left, I'm sorry if I've left this too late, uh, but as a strategist, who would you rather fight a federal election against, Charest or Poiliev? I'll put my liberal hat on here and say, <laughs> you know, you have to be careful about choosing who you want to fight because, uh, like I said, you don't know what the climate will be come election time. Uh, I think both leaders uh, have, a, have a chance to be a serious threat to the Liberals, and the Liberals need to take them both very seriously. 
and any and, and this goes to the NDP as well and any other voter that thinks that oh well Pierre is just way too way too crazy and way too right wing well like Donald Trump was the same thing in, in the United States and everyone kept writing him off until in the end he won and became president uh, so I think folks need to be very cognizant of uh, and careful about saying, well, we don't need to worry about certain someone and we'd rather fight this person. Uh, I think you uh, accept whoever is there, but you prepare for both and, and come out swinging because if you take it soft, if you take it slow, uh, you're going to face uh, a wave that you may not be able to overcome because you, you took the, your opponent way too lightly. That's why we like watching politics. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Mohammed, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Muhammad Ali is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. We've been examining electability and what the next uh, couple of weeks might hold for the Conservative Party of Canada and their leadership race. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Members of the European Union are prepping for a different kind of Cold War this winter. Here's the president of the European Union Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Overall, the flow of Russian gas is now less than one third to what it used to be, for example, at the same time last year. Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. And therefore, in any event, whether it's a partial major cutoff of Russian gas or a total cutoff of Russian gas, Europe needs to be ready. We have two objectives. One is every member state should reuse the use of gas. And our second objective is we provide a safety net for all member states. We are asking the member states to reduce by 15% the gas consumption. 15% why? This is the equivalent to 45 BCM of gas. And with such a reduction, we can make it safely through this winter in case of a complete disruption of Russian gas. Yesterday, European Union governments agreed to reduce their consumption of natural gas this winter to protect themselves against any further supply cuts by Russia amid its invasion of Ukraine, although the measure does contain certain exemptions for some countries. Here to give us some more insight is Ian Lee of the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Shona. Uh, one of the measures taken is that 15% cut that we heard uh, the president of the European Union, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, talk about. That's going to extend from August through March. That is a pretty cold winter for an area that's already seen some pretty cold winters. You're absolutely right. Uh, and the Europeans, you know, people can say, oh, well, you know, they couldn't, it wasn't their fault. How could they have possibly known? Well, they did know. They've known for you know, since Putin came to power, that Putin is, uh, let's be very, very blunt, he's a murderous thug. He has had dissidents assassinated from the very beginning of his presidency, multiple presidencies. He has violated commitments. He's invaded other countries. And, and so his track record is horrible. And when they made, they, the German government, which is the largest economy in Europe, and the de facto leader of the European Union because of the size of their economy and their clout, when they made the decision several years ago to shut down all nuclear power, which by the way is green as can be, there's no emissions from green, from uh, uh, nuclear power, they were putting their hands completely, their, their, their future, completely in the hands of Vladimir Putin. 
And of the 7.7 billion people on planet Earth uh, that we should trust, I would put Mr. Putin at the bottom of 7.7 billion people. In other words, this was a catastrophically disastrous decision five, six years ago and was made. I criticized it, as did others uh, at the time. It was disastrous. You don't put all your eggs in one basket to use some famous, you know, cliches. In other words, they put all their eggs into the Russian basket and said, we're going to be completely dependent on Vladimir Putin. And as I just said, out of 7.7 billion people in the world, the person you would least want to trust in putting all your energy eggs in one basket would be him. And now the chickens have come home to roost. And now they're going to suffer this winter. But but there's a larger point here, Shona, and then I'll, I'll stop. Um, you know, we've been told by many environmental activists and by leading politicians and the UN climate change conferences, you know, we got to just turn off the sp spigots. We just got to shut down the oil and gas, shut down pipelines and shut down the use of all fossil fuels. And I and others have argued you cannot shut down the fossil fuels until you have created an alternative energy system of renewable energy. You don't shut down the fossil fuels, which is 75% of total energy provided across Europe, US, Canada, and other countries. So it's the, it's the predominant energy supplier of fossil fuels, principally oil and natural gas. You don't just shut them down and then say, oh, now what are we going to do to replace them? You should be replacing them, build the alternative infrastructure, which will take years and trillions of dollars, and then you wind down the old system. They did it upside down and backward. The advocates and governments followed suit, and they have created this catastrophe, this looming catastrophe uh, coming this fall and winter when it gets very cold. And this should be an object lesson to uh, those politicians in Canada and the states who are advocating the same thing. Close down pipelines, shut down pipelines, shut down refineries, shut down extraction of oil and gas, and then, oh, don't worry about the energy. We'll worry about that afterwards. Well, what we'll end up with is a catastrophic crisis in our hands, including food, because food, agricultural production, is a very intensive user of oil and gas. Well, it's interesting what you're saying, because this is something that we covered actually last week on this show. Uh, and that's what's going to be happening in terms of energy in Ontario and the planning that really needs to be done and done quickly, because Pickering is going offline. Uh, uh, Bruce and Darlington will be undergoing uh, renovations and repairs. And so we've got to come up with a plan for what we're going to be doing for energy in this province in the short term, uh, because hydro is pretty much at capacity and there isn't enough capacity for wind and solar power yet. It's not, you're absolutely right, but if I can just put a nuance on that, Shona, it's not just that uh, we don't, uh, wind and solar are, are, are a very small percentage of total energy in Canada or in Ontario. That's absolutely correct. But the problem is, is that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Bill Gates, who is incredibly pro-green and pro-alternative and is funding with his own money and the hundreds, tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars research into alternative energies, has said in his newsletter, it is impossible, impossible to rely completely on wind and solar until, until we have a major technological breakthrough in mass storage. 
Now, people understand the word mass storage, I think. Storage in a, on a small level is called batteries. Battery in a flashlight, battery in your cell phone. Mass storage is storing gargantuan amounts of electricity that will fuel the country, that will energize the country. There has been no breakthrough. There are billions of dollars being spent around the world working on a breakthrough in mass storage. It isn't there yet. And as Gates said, you cannot rely on wind and solar until we have a breakthrough and nobody knows when that date's going to come. It could come, you know, next week, uh, next year. It could take 10 day years. It could take 50 years. But you don't bet the farm and shut down the economy or shut down the uh, oil and gas supply in the 10th largest economy in the world that is, by the way, the second coldest country in the world, according to the World Bank, using mean average winter temperature. Only Russia is colder than Canada. And so this is to shut down oil and natural gas, as is being advocated, you are literally playing with the lives of human beings because you have to heat your home when it's minus 25 out in January. We're speaking with Ian Lee of the Sprott School of Business. Uh, well, let's talk about Russia and let's focus on Russia a little bit here. Um, the sanctions that the world has put on Russia and uh, and the European Union doesn't want to be at risk from whatever it is that Putin might want to do. But are the sanctions working on Russia? They've been impo- and they've been in effect for a while now. Shona, I'm so glad you've asked me that question. I've been doing research nonstop on this since even before the sanctions were imposed. I've studied sanctions in the past because it comes up periodically. And and there's this, you know, as you know, there's a big debate going on today. And there has been for a very many, many years, long before Putin and Russia, South Africa, for example, when it was apartheid. But whether they work or not, it's widely considered that the sanctions that were led by then Brian Mulroney, the Conservative Prime Minister of Canada, were extremely effective in bringing the apartheid regime to an end. But we're not talking about apartheid in South Africa. We're talking today. The All the things I'm reading suggest that they are working. Now, there's contrary stories stories in the media showing sh- shelves filled with, uh, with food products, food products, which is a specious argument because food, uh, Russia is one of the largest agricultural producers in the world. And secondly, the sanctions do not apply to food. What they're, where they're being kneecapped and why they are working is that they're applying, the sanctions are applied to banks, to the transfer of money, and most importantly, I argue, to IT and chips and IT expertise. And people say, oh, well, okay, so they can't build a few computers. Uh, 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 uh. Everybody stop right there. Computer chips are in everything. Everything. They're in your cell phone. They're in your bank software. <laughs> They're in your <laughs> every hospital, every government department, every corporation uses chips. Every automobile uses chips. Your lawnmower uses chips, for goodness gracious sake. I know my lawnmower just died and I have to get the chip replaced. <laughs> chips are embedded in everything. And that's going to bring the Russian economy slowly to its knees. Because just think about it. Every medical device, imaging device, all the medical technologies to evaluate people when they get sick or have a heart attack or have embedded chips. You know, you need it for healthcare. You need it for banking. You need it for all the modern industries in any economy. And this is going to 
cause and it is causing damage. I'm reading accounts from inside Russia from people who are brave enough to speak out. And by the way, the central bank governor, a very, very intelligent and competent individual, uh, the, uh, she has been giving speeches to the Russian parliament saying these sanctions are very grave and they're causing great damage to the Russian economy. This is the chief governor, the governor of the Russian central bank who knows way more about what's going on in Russia than any pundit in Canada or the US or outside of Russia. She's the expert. That's why Putin appointed her, by the way. She's really brilliant. And and she is saying repeatedly to the Duma, the Russian parliament, it's very grave, shortages are occurring, businesses aren't able to get spare parts for the airplanes, for the cars, for the trucks, for transportation. And it's going to slowly, slowly grind down. And it's going to cause enormous, it is causing damage, it's going to cause more damage. And the only question is, will it, will they grind down before the war ends or will it take longer? We don't know how long it's going to take to immobilize Russia. It's going to take time. And I don't mean two weeks or two months. It's going to take many months, a year, maybe a year and a half to really, really cause visible damage to sh- reveal the visible damage to the Russian economy. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I hadn't heard that she had been speaking out. What I have heard is that Dmitry Medvedev has been speaking out. And this seems to indicate that there are some cracks in Putin's regime that are starting to to really show up. She was very careful, and I'm, she's a very, very uh, capable person. I've read about her in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Globe Mail. And she's widely considered around the world. This isn't just Russian cheerleading. I'm not a Russian cheerleader, I assure you. Uh, but this isn't people saying in Russia, saying rah, rah, rah for this for this individual. Uh, central banks around the world have praised her for her ability. She's, she's, uh, she's just amazing. But having said that, you can only do so much with monetary policy. Not even a brilliant genius chief uh, um, uh, governor of the central bank can conjure up chips for medical imaging devices if they don't exist in your country and you cannot get them. You can't create things out of nothing. So she's providing a lot of stimulus to the economy to try to keep incomes up so people can buy their food. But the the fundamentals that are needed in an economy, an efficient modern banking system, IT, infrastructure, is slowly grinding down along with all of the industries that use chips, which is every industry, including agriculture, banking, food production, and so forth. So, and she's not, she's very careful. She's not criticizing Putin at all. She's not criticizing the war. All she's doing when she reports the problem is saying, this is the impact of the sanctions. She's very, very careful. She's not criticizing Putin. She's not criticizing the war. She's not even discussing the war in Ukraine. She's discussing the impact of the sanctions of the world community or many countries in the world community on Russia, and she is not sugarcoating it. It's it's fascinating to see what's going to be happening in the days and weeks to come. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. I always appreciate your insight. My pleasure, Shona. Thank you. Ian Lee joining us from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pearson Airport has once again been voted as the worst airport in the world. All you need to do is jump on social media to see the posts of frustrations. I know one woman who has been waiting almost 40 days now for a lost bag. And there have been flight cancellations, huge long lineups. Maybe you remember this video that was posted from Pearson not too long ago with NHLer Ryan Whitney. Hey guys, Whit here. I don't even really know where to explain. There is a 400-person line 
with two Air Canada workers. There's a million canceled flights, so everyone's just panicking. This is the worst airport on earth. I'm telling you, there's no other airport like this. I get here, this woman says, oh, we booked you actually on a flight from here to Montreal and then Montreal to Boston, but that leaves in 50 minutes and you can't make it. They never sent me an email. They just, I, I, I started laughing. I mean, what are you, you going to do? It was either that or like cry. And it hasn't improved since then. Now comes this prediction for Canadian flyers. The situation may actually get worse after the summer travel season. Joining us now is the man who made that prediction in his op-ed that's called Coming Changes to the Canadian Airline Industry Could Lead to Even More Disruption. John Gredek is a faculty lecturer at McGill University and is the coordinator of supply chain and operations management, as well as the Integrated Aviation Management Program. And not only that, he was a senior manager at Air Canada. I think he knows this issue pretty well. Good morning, John. Good morning, Sean. Nice to be here. It's hard to imagine that this situation could get any worse. Oh, I know. It's It's been a rough two or three months at Pearson, um, and as it's been to, in many airports around the world. Um, as the air, as the aviation industry basically copes with you know all this unprecedented demand that we see out there and a shortage of qualified and efficient staff, and I think that you know we're going to get through this hump fairly quickly. I think that you know we're going to get through the demand as soon as school starts and the fall term starts to you know come up with people satisfied about their summer travel um, and the staff get trained. But, you know, but there's a looming issue that I think that, you know, when I wrote my piece, it really was one about, you know, so what, is the, what does the future look like for Canadian aviation? And uh, there's a couple of uh, storm clouds brewing on the horizon that I think are worth talking about. Then please do. What are those storm clouds? Oh, it's, it's just that the industry basically is, is growing and, and it's a good thing. You know, we've have, you know, we have a number of carriers that have shown up over the last two years, like Flair and Lynx. Um, operating out of you know eastern western Canada, operating domestically, um, and they're growing to to some major fleet sizes. Like each of them is going up to 50 airplanes. Um, we have uh, WestJet that's decided to retrench and and uh, reduce its presence in eastern Canada and become a very very strong competitor out of western Canada. Um, and now we have Porter Airlines, who uh, just last week basically at the Farnborough Air Show increased its order uh, for Embraer jets. Uh, to 50 firm orders plus another 50 options. So there's a lot of capacity um, brewing on the Canadian marketplace. Um, and, you know, the one good thing about that is that we will have seat sales. We'll have lots of price reductions to basically fill all that capacity. Question is going to be, you know, is there probably too much capacity being planned in the Canadian market so that, you know, these guys are, are going to be um, you know, in trouble financially because there won't be enough traffic to fill those airplanes up. So I think that, you know, we're going to be in a situation where financially, um, you know, the industry will have overextended itself and that will probably have some rationalization take place in the industry. Well, one of the, thing, one of the things you said about the situation that's going on right now is that it's pretty plain and simple. The airlines were greedy. They were selling more seats than they actually had staff to support. Yep, and I think you know that that's been the case. When you look at what you know the, the history of COVID, and this is all COVID related, you know, COVID back in in March of 2020 on March 13th, March 14th, the world shut down, and aviation basically had to basically bite its tongue and figure out what to do. So, and the, and the easiest thing for the in- industry to do at that point in time was to lay off people, and they did by the tens of thousands. 
And so, and there was money being given back into the industry by governments, including the Canadian government. Uh, and the airlines basically kept that money as cash, didn't really look at trying to rebuild their staffing levels in anticipation of a demand. So when the demand did start to show up again in March of 2022, uh, when, the, you know, when the vaccination mandate started to disappear, when quarantine started to disappear, uh, all of a sudden you, me, everybody in Canada said, let's, let's go. It's time for our trip. And the airlines put a lot of capacity out there without really coming to grips with what's the what's the impact going to be of all this capacity we're offering on the the ability of the infrastructure to technically airports to be able to handle the demand. And this is where it kind of blew up in everybody's face that too much, too many flights, too much capacity, too many people showing up at the airport and the airports just weren't ready to handle it. Yeah, there has been a lot of finger pointing going on. Everybody seems to think it's a different <laughs> sector's problem or they're at fault for it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I keep calling it the flying fickle finger of fate. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, 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 it's really amazing. You know, and it started off back in April and, you know, the airlines were saying, oh, there's not enough cats of people, not enough CBSA people. And, 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 and let's, it's everybody else but me. And so, you know, the government said, okay, let's fix it. Let's go back and let's suspend the, 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 the uh, on-site airport uh, COVID testing. Let's staff up cats. So let's staff up CBSA. Uh, and that should solve the problem, right? Nope, didn't solve the problem. And the problem still remains that, you know, the, the, the resources now that are short are airline related, airline related resources. So the airlines basically went out there and hired 10,000 people over the last three months, except that one thing happened is that they hired them. And the question now is training them and getting the experience that you need to, in fact, be an efficient member of an airport airplane team. And that's what's causing all this grief that they've got all these people but they're having a hard time getting them to work efficiently and safely in an airport environment, and that's taking time. So, John, why is it worse in Canada than other parts of the world, except for maybe Frankfurt, which seems to be the number two <laughs> worst airport in the world? Yeah, well, Frankfurt today is not working. Frankfurt is out, out of commission today, strike by the ground handlers, 24-hour strike. So the airport is, for all intents and purposes, shut down. Uh, but no, but, but this is a, you know, this is a phenomenon that's been going on for three or four months all over Europe since March, April, that, you know, we see, we see, you know, lineups at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, miles long. You see London, you see all of the, the, the bags hanging around London Heathrow Airport, and you got airlines chartering airplanes to bring bags home. No passengers, just bags. And so it really is, you know, a bit of chaos in the entire Western world in terms of airports. I don't see this as much happening in Southeast Asia or in Africa because the demand just isn't there just yet. But, you know, even today in Australia, you know, Qantas basically said we're going to we're going to have to cut back our schedule for July and August because the system can't handle it. So airlines basically are, are anti are, are owning up to the fact that they may have stressed that they, they may have stressed <laughs> it's an operative word may have stressed the system a little too much and they're, they're willing to cut back on capacity. So we're all reacting to it. And hopefully, you know, by the end of the summer, hopefully by mid-September, we're back to a to a, a way where we can basically handle the volumes and have people that are trained to do the job. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting you should mention the baggage issue because, as I said in the opening, I know a woman who's been waiting 40 days for this bag. They don't really know where it is. Well, that's why I keep telling people, get an AirTag. Get an app. I'm, not, I'm not really a fan of Apple, but, you know, but, but Apple's got some interesting technology with the app, with their, with their AirTags. Flip one of those into your bag before you go on your trip, and at least you'll know where your bag is, which is something that the airlines 
don't seem to be able to tell you. Uh, but at least, you know, it's a way for you to basically have your own crowdsourced information about, you know, just tell the airline where my bag is. It's at the other side of the wall. Just here. It's here in Toronto. It's on the other side of the wall. Let's go get it. And so, and you'll, you'll get more and more of those, those situations happen as we, in fact, look at the way in which we, uh, we, we handle technology because people are going to get technology installed and you'll have smart bags and a smart bag will tell you where it's at. And I think that's that's the next generation of technology we'll see coming into this system as a result of what we're seeing this summer. Well, I was thinking maybe we could employ the International Space Station because I'm pretty sure the pile of luggage that's been lost would be visible from space. <laughs> yeah, we keep finding these bags along taxiways and along runways, which is, to me, just not not even close to being, you know, I, I can't accept that, but... That's you know what that you know we when you walk into Pearson Airport in the international baggage room it's a it's a mess and same domestically so it it there is a need for the airlines and for the airports and, and as their partner to be able to clean out that mess and just get it out of get it out of the airport it doesn't belong in the airport get it out to a facility where you can basically hire FedEx DHL you know couriers Purolator whoever. Just get those bags into people's hands at home and just send them home rather than try to figure out where they should be in their, in their trips. Just get them out and clear up the airport. We're speaking with John Graddock, who's a faculty lecturer in aviation management at McGill University, also a former senior management at Air Canada. When all of this was going on initially, when they were selling lots and lots and lots of flights, how come nobody thought, you know what, we're going to need some people? Well, they did. You know, I think that, you know, again, the question is the hiring cycle of how, you know, people, you know, working in an airport environment is very secure. It's very safe. You have to get trained. It takes you 12 to 14 weeks of training to get to understand, you know, how dangerous is it to work in an airport environment and what do you have to do as an employee to make sure you work. But the the flip side of that coin is that, guess what? Those jobs are not, you know, not paying a lot, not paying a lot. You know, you're, there's some someone arranges with fifty, you know, eighteen to twenty-one dollars an hour, and, and you know you're you're working hard, you know, and it's physical, and so it's it's something that the industry has to come to grips with in terms of the compensation packages they put together for the people they're looking to operate in these environments. For the longest period, you know, the airlines have subcontracted, have gone to third-party contractors to basically provide these services at the airports, and their and their key driving compensation you know compensation compensation was a key element of how do you how do you price it so everybody was going to the lowest common denominator in terms of wages and we were paying the price that nobody wants to work in those jobs anymore the environment has changed and we're getting short short of staff and cats you know, is probably one of the one big example where they've gone through at least 10,000 applications and they've only hired a thousand so because it's really not making the cut in terms of both quality of people as well as the compensation that's being offered. Well, and if you've already been laid off because of COVID and the job doesn't pay that great and is really physical and with record low unemployment, you can get a job somewhere else. It is going to be really tough to find people to do these jobs. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I think the airlines and the airports are coming to grips with that issue right now. And, and the other side of the coin is that the ULCCs, the flares and the lynxes of this world, you know, uh, you know, they're you look at their t- look at who they are. They're ultra low cost carriers, and what does that mean? That means that you will be paying very low salaries, 
in order for you to maintain that moniker called ultra low cost. If you don't, if you pay too high salaries, you're going to be up there in the, in the cost structure of the regular guys. So, you know, there, there's there's a there's a we're going to be looking at some disruption in the marketplace when we start looking at adjusting salaries, adjusting capacity, and and looking at you know a shrinking demand because summer is over. Well, I know some people that uh, will be traveling very soon. They are going to a wedding in Winnipeg. They're coming in from the States. They're going to have to go through Pearson and are dreading it. Um, And in fact, they actually looked at uh, flying to North Dakota instead and driving up, but they can't do that uh, for a reasonable price. Um, So instead of buying a tag and putting it on their bag, they're going to try really hard to make sure that they just have carry-on and they can do this entire weekend packing just in that small little carry-on bag, and, and you know, and and that, and everybody's doing that. It's not just you know the occasional person doing that. Everybody understands the, you know, the the potential for lost baggage. So you're getting a lot of carry-on bags, and they're getting bigger bags and stuff like that. So you know, the odds are that even if you show up with a carry-on bag at the airport at the airplane, they may say there's no more room on board to carry your bag, so we'll have to check your bag, your carry-on bag. And, um, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose. So, you know, my suggestion is, yeah, put as much as you can in the carry-on. Don't overstuff it. Uh, and if you're going to if you're gonna connect, uh, make sure you have lots of ground time when you connect. Don't do a 45-minute connection. It's not going to work. You know, do a, do a two- or three- or four-hour connection. Do an overnight. I don't, you know, it doesn't really matter. Give the airlines enough breathing room to kind of compensate for their own lack of, of staff and give them enough time to basically process those bags. Because that's going to be the key. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier about Porter Airlines. Um, we're used to them, uh, hearing about them with regards to Billy Bishop Airport. But you were saying that they've uh, put in an order for an additional 50 jets, an option for another 50 out of that. Isn't there a problem with that extra capacity at Pearson? Because it's limited there. Oh, yeah. it's a, it's a, Pearson is one of two airports in Canada that are slot controlled. Uh, which means that there's a limit to the number of airplanes that can arrive or depart at Pearson at any one given hour. And it's not just terminal capacity, it's runaway, it's taxiways. It's the aggregate of all the capacity capabilities at an airport that determines the number of slots. And guess what? You know, peak periods of time in the morning, but at you know, 8 a.m. in the morning or 5 p.m. at night, the airport is full. And so if a new carrier wants to come in and wants to get an 8 o'clock departure or a 5 p.m. departure, um, the odds are, you know, you probably will be, you know, out of luck. Um, so when Porter comes in with 50 airplanes and they're going to be based out of Pearson, um, the odds are that, you know, Pearson airport is going to be very stressed in terms of accommodating that demand and Porter is going to want to work at peak operating times. They'll want an 8 a.m. departure. They'll want a 5 p.m. departure. They won't want to operate at 3 in the morning or 7, 7 p.m. at night. So they're going to be looking at, you know, some commercially, you know, uh, viable operations that operationally, Pearson won't be able to handle. So that's another level of complexity that we're going to have once Pearson opens up to Porter and uh, gets their flights in there. Does that mean there could be some spinoff benefits for either Hamilton's Monroe Airport or London International? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. It, you know, it, it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be, you know, Flair and Lynx, you know, they're already there. They're already in London. They're already in Kitchener-Waterloo. They're, they're in Hamilton. Uh, so, you know, there may be you know, an opportunity for those 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 surrounding airports to basically tout their uh, lack of disruption, lack of capacity, their lack of 
of constraints or lack of slots to basically to attract more traffic. So yeah, there, there it is going to be a problem with Pearson in you know probably in the next 18, 24 months as Lynx, Flair, and Porter bring in their 150 new jets, and uh, they're all going to want to fly out of Pearson. So not going to happen. So in the short term, tag your well, luggage, use carry on if you can, and pack a hell of a lot of patience. Yeah, and try to try to get your trips, you know, rescheduled to September and later if you can. But if not, good luck. Yeah, but then aren't we running into, you know, uh, island getaway vacation time and, and then March break after uh, that? That's the... <laughs> hey, listen, you know, we got the bank holiday this weekend and we got Labor Day. So, you know, we're, we're, we're in that, we're in, you know, these these peak periods that are, might be a little short, but, you know, you're, you're we're going to be in this continuous cycle of you know congestion and unstacking Pearson and trying to make Pearson work a lot better than it has been working for the last three months because just, you know this this can't go on and I think there's a need for for a review in terms of what Pearson's capacity is and what it will be in the future and lest we forget Thanksgiving American Thanksgiving <laughs> Christmas uh, lovely yeah <laughs> are you welcome are, to well welcome to fun and games in the aviation industry. <laughs> Are you planning what? any trips anytime soon? Oh, yeah. I've got one planned for next week. I'm dreading it, but, you know, it's, it's, it's part for the course. But I'm, I'm flying nonstop, and I'm flying out early in the morning. Which the odds of those flights working are pretty good. So it's when you fly with connections or later in the afternoon that you're in a bit more, uh, bit more risky in terms of operating practices. And will you be checking any baggage, sir? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Of course not, Sean. No <laughs> way. <laughs> well, thank you so much for those insights and those tips as well. I really appreciate it. All right. It. Have a great day. Enjoy yourself. Thank you. We've been talking Thanks. about oh, Pearson <laughs> and what a pain it is to fly these days. And maybe a couple of tips in there about how you can make it a little bit easier on yourself, none the least of which is making sure you are really, really patient. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In the wake of some amazing images from the Webb Space Telescope, uh, giving us a never-before-seen view of some of the galaxies that are just in our neck of the woods, and word that Canada, along with the UK, Australia, and of course the US, have space divisions within the National Defense Umbrella, comes another interesting note. The Pentagon is officially opening UFO Investigations Office. It's going to be called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office follows a release of videos a couple of years ago of some flybys near U.S. Navy pilots. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. The whole thing, dude. I'm sure the creation of this office is something that made our next guest sit up and take notice. On the line with us is Chris Rutowski, ufologist and science writer. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. What the heck is an all-domain anomaly resolution <laughs> office? That's a good, it's a good question. Um, there's no question the, uh, that the Pentagon has had some interest in things that were flying around uh, in the skies, but you know, they've had some interesting reports because the original uh, videos that people are familiar with that you played the clip from there was from the United States Navy, and the Navy has not just reported things in the air, but strange things in the ocean and so this office is supposed to be looking at uh, anything anomalous unidentified space airborne submerged transmedium all this wonderful stuff uh, so they're looking for for anything that they think might be something strange that they don't understand so is this like another project blue book 
It's actually going further than Blue Book because they are including things that are uh, seen underwater. Uh, the United States Blue Book was United States Air Force. This is uh, Pentagon, so it's all the uh, the various divisions. Uh, in fact, they're including a lot of work and a lot of observations by pilots, for example. In fact, this office seems to be focused on uh, official records from pilots and radar operators and, and individuals like that at a high level. So uh, whereas Blue Book accepted things from the general public, this one doesn't seem to be uh, taking cases from the general public. That still seems to be the domain of of uh, UFO organizations. Well, and for a long time, if I understand correctly, a lot of pilots who are seeing these unusual things or having uh, some very questionable and unnerving encounters um, they just wouldn't report anything for fear that they would be considered, you know, off their nut. Right. As a matter of fact, this new office uh, has some provisions in some of the uh, uh, the mandate that it's uh, that it accompanies uh, to allow for, I suppose, the equivalent of a whistleblower that uh, pilots are going to be protected by their reporting of unusual things. I, you know, there had been some stigma just regarding UFOs, as you know, a lot of people have had that stigma for many, many years, and. Uh, even though pilots have often been uh, reporting things regularly, uh, they've been, suffered because of it. And uh, uh, this office is attempting to, uh, you know, to write that. You know, in Canada, Transport Canada, for example, regularly has reports from pilots uh, filed with them. And even just over the past 15 or 20 years, there's something like 500 separate reports uh, that are considered UFO reports just from Transport Canada. And the FAA has released very recently in the United States, uh, a list of uh, close encounters uh, or near misses, as they call them, uh, between pilots and unusual objects, lights in the sky that shouldn't be there and things like that uh, from the past 20 years or so. So pilots are reporting these things and this office may uh, alleviate some of the stigma that's associated with them. Well, and in Canada, we had a, a former cabinet minister who was very vocal about, uh, about things like UFOs. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, former Minister of National Defense, uh, Paul Hellyer, uh, who held the office briefly in the 60s, he was very vocal about uh, UFOs. But recently, other Canadian politicians have come forward uh, to ask questions in parliamentary committees about unidentified aerial phenomena uh, flying in Canadian skies, especially near, for example, nuclear power plants. Uh, why are there UFOs on unidentified flying objects around such things, around Pickering, around Bruce? What are they doing there? And they're asking the questions in parliamentary committees. Uh, now, some people have made jokes about this. I'm one of them. That okay. <laughs> While we have images from the Webb Space Telescope that really look quite amazing, I mean, really high-resolution stuff, uh, it was quite astounding to see some of these photos. There's never been a clear photo of an unexplained aerial phenomenon, at least not one that we've been shown. Absolutely. Even these videos that came out from the United States Navy are really, you know, a little fuzzy. They're, they're night vision in some cases. Um, they're uh, thermal imaging. So we don't really have a, a clear image. We have the eyewitness testimony from the pilots to accompany some of them. And you'd think that the pilots with, you know, 5,000 flying hours would be able to tell a, uh, a UFO from, you know, a balloon or something like that. But that being uh, set aside... You know, we do have, uh, you know, a, a lack of verifiable uh, evidence of UFOs in the skies. And yet, you know, the idea behind this office is that they believe there's enough good evidence out there uh, to use the tracking systems. In fact, 
this office is claiming to be able to use uh, artificial intelligence and all the resources at the disposal of the Pentagon uh, to be able to uh, get high resolution images, radar and tracking of uh, the objects in our skies. Do you think that it's a coincidence that this uh, all domain anomaly resolution office, it really just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Uh, (laughs) That it comes at the same time as uh, we found out that Canada is officially setting up a space division. UK and Australia already have them. Well, yeah, it's interesting. The United States, uh, you know, under Trump, uh, he ordered the Space Force. Um, Canada has had some involvement through the Canadian Space Agency for some time. Um, but to have a, a military office, uh, is, uh, uh, it's quite interesting that uh, they would be adding this uh, right at the same time. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Chris Rutowski, who's a ufologist and a science writer. Um, there is one theory that I've held for a long time, and uh, I mentioned it on the air a little bit earlier this morning, and I'm going to lay it on you. We are the Florida of the universe, Because we don't get along with each other particularly well. And if there is intelligent life out there, and I firmly believe there is, you take a look at those images of just that one small section of the universe and how many galaxies there are there. There's got to be intelligent life beyond our comprehension. But I think they want to keep an eye on us. I'd go further than that. I'd say there's got to be intelligence out, uh, intelligent life out there because I don't see any on Earth at all. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, all you have to do is watch newscasts, and you really have to, to wonder. Hey, hey, what, hey, what hey, hey! Take it now. easy, there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's no question. We do know that uh, life in the universe uh, should be out there. Um, the distances between stars is very great, but you know, given uh, enough technology and the advancement of technology, we know that there's probably Uh, advanced civilizations out there that are not just a hundred years older than ours, maybe a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand. And you think over that time they might figure out a way to travel between the stars effectively, maybe not breaking the laws of physics, maybe bending them a little in ways that we can't understand yet. So in theory there should be a lot out there, but you know, we haven't found any evidence. And the idea behind the web, one of the ideas behind the web telescope is to to try and look closely at at some of the distant objects and uh, Uh, maybe try and resolve uh, if there is actually life on uh, some of those planets out there surrounding some of those stars. But one of the things about the images that we're getting from the Webb telescope is that we're actually looking back in time. Right. It could be that, uh, uh, you know, if we're seeing life on a planet that's, uh, you know, a thousand or 10,000 light years away, who knows what might have happened to that uh, that civilization. In fact, there's one theory that... uh, uh, there's only one intelligent civilization in the universe at any one time because something unfortunate happens to one at a time. And, uh, you know, we've we've had uh, nuclear arsenals for some time, and I don't know. You've know, got to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it seems like all of this, you know, investigation and uh, questioning, it's all gone into a higher gear after the three video clips that surfaced back in 2017, showing some of those unidentified objects uh, that were taken by U.S. Navy pilots. No question. There does seem to be an increased interest at at higher levels. I mentioned that Canadian politicians have uh, already come forward. Uh, In the Canadian uh, government, uh, Canada has had Uh, some investigations into UFOs uh, right from the 1950s right to the present time. We have a fairly continuous set of files uh, of uh, Canadian government investigations from the National Research Council, from the RCMP, 
uh, and the RCAF uh, that indicate that there had been some fairly in-depth uh, investigations. We had our own project blue book called Project Second Story that also paralleled it in some ways. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned uh, Transport Canada. Pilots are reporting UFOs all the time. And uh, this, this new office in the States talks about uh, objects in or on the water. Uh, Canada has something on the books very, very similar. In fact, there's a there's something on the books right now. If if you're anywhere near one of the lake, Great Lakes, or on the waterways, there you're required uh, by uh, the uh, notices to mariners, uh, mariners at uh, in uh, Transport Canada and uh, official regulations to report uh, all Canadian vessels uh, and all should be reporting all airborne and waterborne objects which appear to be hostile, suspicious, or unidentified. And they actually say in the manual for notices to mariners, this is the most recent version that's uh, available for mariners, uh, guided missiles, submarines, unidentified flying objects, and surface warships. Well, I mean, I, the, the surface warships, one would think would be no-brainers, and maybe the guide, guided missiles and submarines, but it actually specifies that mariners on the lakes are required to report unidentified flying objects. Uh, to uh, military or marine uh, offices, so that's on the books in Canada. So, you know, if you're if you're out there right now and see something, you should be reporting it. Well, one of the things that you said earlier, and I know that it's a, a part of this whole investigation, uh, and that's transmedia. And you mentioned it a couple of times. So, something that might be unidentified that is flying in the air, uh, then goes into the water. Yeah, and you know, there's very very reports of this I mean the the, the Navy reports uh, and the videos that we talked about earlier uh, that there's a couple of those that seem to suggest that what what these things are doing but uh, you know other uh, UFO records we have something like 25,000 UFO reports that have been filed in Canada over the past 30 years uh, I can't think of a single one that involves objects going in or out of of the water, so uh, I suspect that uh, you know that the United States military has either some official records, uh, some observations by ships at sea of things doing that. We have reports of things crashing into the water. I mean, here in Canada, uh, there's a classic case from 1969, Shag Harbor, where a number of people, including RCMP officers, said they had seen something fall towards the ocean, and later something was found on the ocean and ships were commandeered to uh, take a look to try and rescue, but all they found was glowing green foam on the surface of the water. So we do have reports like that, um, but uh, to include transmedium in the definition for this particular office, uh, for me is very, very unusual. I don't really don't know what to make of it. Well, Chris, let me tell you. Because uh, we're broadcasting from Hamilton, Ontario, uh, and there have been reports for some time, periodically, you know, this is not a constant thing, but uh, some people have reported seeing over Lake Ontario lights that they can't explain that then actually go into Lake Ontario, not far from Mississauga. Well, and and that's true. In fact, there was a report uh, just a few years ago, somebody was on the Burlington Bridge. Uh, looking eastward, the lengthwise of the lake, and they said that they had seen something over the lake that seemed to drop down into the lake. And we have reports from people on the Niagara side of the lake looking towards Toronto, uh, and they reported some lights that seemed to be moving uh, on the surface of the lake and dropped in. I mean, it's possible putting on my, you know, the science hat, you know, these are probably boats that, you know, the waves blocked now and then, or maybe their lights went out or something like that. 
uh, it's possible there's a, a lot of explanations that that could be envisioned for these. In fact, most UFO reports have reasonable explanations. It's only a very small percentage every year, something like one or two or five percent that don't seem to have easy explanations. So if something's reported, it's there might be a pretty decent explanation. But in the case of you know people who see things uh, on the waters, uh, it's possible that the, they're they're you know seeing things enter. Uh, but it's possible that they're just seeing things from a funny angle. So uh, it's it's really tough to say, but the idea is if we don't get the reports, it's going to be impossible to ascertain. And that's why this office in the United States was formed. They want to hear from people, and of course in the United States, particularly military, but here in Canada, you can make these reports publicly. And uh, there's a lot of individuals waiting to hear. Well, that's interesting you should say that, because one of the things when I was first hearing some of these reports was that uh, I always attributed it to Pearson Airport, which is just north of the lake in Mississauga. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we get lots of reports from people who are seeing things flying overhead. Um, I mentioned earlier about uh, nuclear plants. I mean, people said uh, they had seen things flying over Pickering. Well, the trouble is that um, you know, between Toronto and Pickering heading eastward, that's a major flight path. So if you're seeing a UFO from Toronto look, looking towards Pickering, is a, there really a UFO hovering over Pickering or is it just something that's flying along that flight path? So it's it's difficult to say. Uh, but as I say, that you know, there are so many cases every year. We have somewhere in the neighborhood between five and a th- 500 and 1,000 UFO reports in Canada every year. Most are centered around population centers, so certainly Toronto uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the uh, greater Toronto area has a have a good proportion of these. So, you know, some of these might be planes, some of them might be satellites. We've had recently a rash of reports from eastern Canada, from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and PEI, of uh, lights in the sky traveling very, very quickly in a train uh, along line. Turns out uh, there is a perfect ideal viewing conditions for watching the Starlink satellites that were recently launched. And we had dozens and dozens of reports of, of those that people thought we were being invaded by, you know, a huge army or a, a flotilla of UFOs. But it turned out to be long lines of uh, Starlink satellites. And there's you know, 50 launched at a time, and I think we have somewhere around five or 6,000 up there right now. There's a lot of things that can be mistaken for UFOs. Well, yeah, there was a, a video um, on one of the social media platforms. Uh, I think it was near San Diego. It was taken in the evening uh, at night, and uh, it was a cluster of different lights that were moving in very unusual and odd ways. But to me, it kind of looked like, you know, those coordinated drone light shows? Oh yeah, yeah. We in fact we had a couple of those from Toronto last year, if I recall, uh, where uh, during a, a drone festival uh, they were really pulling out all the stops, and they made some very interesting images in the sky that people were reporting and didn't know that the, the drone festival was on. So, yeah, that's going to be possible. And in fact, there's a, a serious concern about drones right now um, that uh, Transport Canada records. Every day, something of the order of uh, five or six reports of drones flying too close to aircraft. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if a, an object is getting too close and the pilot doesn't, you know, immediately recognize it as a drone, it's sometimes reported as a UFO. And, uh, it, you know, there's uh, some safety uh, concerns right now uh, if people are flying uh, too close or a drone gets uh, away from its operator. Uh, and, you know, if you're talking about the safety of people on board uh, airliners, 
this is an area that should be studied and investigated more thoroughly. So my argument is pour more money into uh, UFO and, and UAP investigations, maybe open a Canadian version of the anomaly office from the States, because uh, if there is some safety concerns, uh, people are flying some drones where they shouldn't, or in the fact, in the case of some of the pilots, uh, there's a malfunction on board their radar or their uh, uh, resolution advisory uh, systems, uh, that's a concern as well. So I think you know, there should be uh, more interest in this, and we're not even talking about aliens. We're just talking about the safety of people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know that the uh, Canadian Space Division, uh, well, its configuration even before this is becoming an official division um, of the Canadian military, they've been tracking uh, space junk that's out there. And uh, I know that there's uh, some Chinese space junk that's supposed to be Coming to coming Earth. in soon, yeah, very soon, uh, and yeah, that's well. And you know, Canada and Canada is partner with NORAD, so we do know that a lot of the UFO reports that we have on record, and we've obtained many, many hundreds of documents uh, from the Canadian uh, government uh, regarding NORAD uh, uh, files on UFOs over Canadian skies, and in some cases, uh, military uh, jets have been uh, scrambled. Uh, to take a look uh, and some have flown from the United States to uh, supplement what's uh, happening here in Canada. So you know there are records of UFOs that are being studied here in Canada and have caused some concern in military circles. So it is something that you know there's no question there's some you know amusement with regard to some of the stories you hear but it's being taken very seriously by the American military and uh, the Canadian military as well especially in Canada where we seem to have a better record uh, going back to the 1940s of investigations and studies uh, based on the documents that we have. Has there been an, un- an increase in sightings recently? I'm thinking, you know, with COVID and when people were at home and shut down, they had a lot of time to go out and take a look at the night sky. As a matter of fact, <laughs> there, there's uh, uh, some papers that are coming out quite recently on some statistical studies on that. turns out that during the, the first lockdown, so the in 2020, uh, the number of UFOs that were reported increased dramatically, like a factor of two or three. Um, in fact, I think that was one of our highest uh, number of UFOs in one year on record in Canada, maybe about 1,200, 1,300, something like that. Um, but then the following year, 2021, when there still were some significant lockdowns, but uh, you know people were starting to get out a little bit, uh, the number of UFOs dropped dramatically. In fact, a fraction of what the what there was, perhaps not even 700, I don't think, in one year. So uh, there have been fluctuations over the years, and maybe there's a relationship to uh, to COVID. Uh, I th- like to think that it's just the fact that maybe people are spending a little more time outside, enjoying uh, enjoying the skies that we do have, because uh, you know, we have some great weather, <laughs> despite sometimes it being a little too hot. <laughs> I wonder if there's any correlation with alcohol consumption. Hmm. That's been proposed, but I point out that the uh, peak of UFO uh, observations is at around uh, 11 o'clock at night, long before the bar is closed. So <laughs> let's, uh, we can leave her there. Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Chris Rutowski is a ufologist and a science writer. Uh, We've been talking about the creation of a new office within the Pentagon uh, that will be looking at unexplained aerial phenomenon, and it's going to be called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.